New information revealed last week about four cyber criminals who were allegedly linked to the 2014 breach of J.P. Morgan Chase and 11 other financial organizations has raised a number of questions, not the least of which is simply, how could this have happened? Federal banking regulators for months have been stressing the need for more enhanced cybersecurity controls and defenses. And just this week, the FFIEC issued updates to its management booklet, which is part of the FFIEC's Information Technology Examination Handbook, to emphasize why cybersecurity controls must be baked into corporate governance and risk management at the board and C-suite level. Today, I'm joined by Chuck Eastham, an international computer security and forensics expert, to talk about some of the recent events we've seen, why they matter, and how they are expected to impact cybersecurity initiatives in 2016 and beyond. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Chuck, let's start by talking a bit about the two recent indictments related to the Chase breach of 2014. How were these guys able to get in and compromise all of this customer data from so many leading financial services firms? Well, some of the details of the case have not been disclosed publicly because there's an ongoing criminal investigation, and some of this will come out during the trial. But essentially what they did, they got personal information from the banks and utilize that information to do what we call social engineering. And social engineering is just a fancy tech term for saying we talk people into something. And what they talked people into was investing in inappropriate stocks as what's called a pump and dump scam. We get a bunch of people to invest in a stock that's really worthless, only we bought it in advance, knowing that this will increase the value so we can sell it. The real key to these breaches was they used personal information to make their pitch more believable. If I were to call you today and say, I'd like you to invest in some new stock, you might ignore me. But if I call you with specific information and you believe I'm coming on behalf of your bank, you might take that recommendation a lot more seriously and I have a much better chance of getting you to believe what I'm trying to talk you into. So Chuck, a couple of points here, and I think you make some valid points here talking about how this information was used, but let's go back to talk about how were the attackers able to get this information? I mean, first and foremost, we know that the customer data in the chase breach at least was not encrypted, should it have been, and even if it had been encrypted, how were these hackers able to get into the system so easily? I mean, are the systems really that wide open? Well, with this specific case, again, the specific details are just coming to light as the case goes forward. But as a general case, yes, the data should have been encrypted. I am amazed at how often people don't encrypt data. Major companies don't do it all the time. And I'm frequently called to work on cases where personal information was sent an email that was unencrypted, stored in a database that wasn't encrypted. And the sad thing is, encryption is so easy to implement. Email is a classic example. Most people I know at some point send something in email that they would prefer not to become public information. But very few people I talk to actually encrypt their email, and they're very easy to use, inexpensive attachments that will add into your email client and do the encryption for you. You don't have to be any sort of cryptography expert. In the case of personal information on Chase servers and other bank servers, hard drive encryption is built into many operating systems. Database encryption is relatively easy to implement, but a lot of companies don't do it, which means if I can get any level of access to your network, I have a really, really good chance of being able to read this personal information because it's there in plain text. Now, that takes us to how easy is it to get access to a network. Unfortunately, the larger the network can mean the easier it is to get in because they have so many points of connection with outside vendors, with partners, remote workers coming in from home to log into the network. 
there are so many points of entry that the chances of me finding one of those vulnerable is pretty high. So, Chuck, do you think, and I know that you've mentioned before, that there's still a lot going on as far as these investigations are concerned and that much more will probably come to light in the future. But what do you think the immediate implications are based on what's come out in these indictments for banking institutions and other organizations to protect PII? Well, the immediate implication, to my mind, is that we're simply not doing nearly enough. As you've already pointed out, having the data simply sitting on a server unencrypted is, is an egregious omission in the security posture. And that shouldn't have happened. Unfortunately, there are lots of companies, not just banks, healthcare, hospitals, all sorts of organizations that have, frankly, too low a security posture so that breaches we hear about every week, some major breach. If it's not a bank, it's a medical billing company. It's a retail company. It's a large travel company. It's an airline. Because, unfortunately, most of our systems were designed before we were that worried about hacking and identity theft. And now we're trying to tack on security after the fact, and in many cases, just not doing a good enough job. So what I see happening in the immediate future is at least some push for some regulatory controls, at least on things like banks and healthcare information, to force these organizations to do a better job. So Chuck, let's go back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that was the social engineering piece that was linked to some of the data that was exposed about Chase customers. So you know what's interesting here is that this really wasn't that much of a high-tech scheme. They didn't go in and take over bank accounts, for instance, with malware. They just used the trusted brand of the bank to convince consumers consumers to invest. What does this tell us about how cyber attacks are evolving? Well, contrary to what we see in media, a lot of cyber attacks don't involve high levels of technical skill. The image that there are just legions of hackers out there that are technical geniuses is, is inaccurate. In many cases, it's just using information to convince someone to give me access, to give me money, something of that nature. There are a lot of schemes that depend on me learning just enough about the target to call them or email them or contact them in any way and have enough information that they find me credible and believable. With J.P. Morgan Chase calling someone, mentioning the bank, mentioning that you happen to have a CD and a mutual fund there, makes me sound credible. It makes me sound like I'm actually an employee of the bank. The bottom line is there is too much information readily accessible on most people, so it's very easy to contact someone and to sound credible. Chuck, we've seen similar tactics used in business email compromise schemes, which have impacted countless uh, organizations and businesses throughout the world. And it's just interesting to see that it really is social engineering that seems to be kind of coming to the top of, of the risks that we need to be dealing with. It amazes me how much information people put public. I was just having a conversation with a federal agent last week who told me in one particular company, they had 40 different employees who had posted information on the LinkedIn profile that involve projects that were not yet public. Now, I have a LinkedIn profile, I have a Facebook page, but you don't put something out there unless it's something you want everyone in the world to know. People post that they're about to take a trip, about to take a cruise. Well, then I know you're unavailable for a period of time. People post that they're about to do some new project. Well, then I know what you're doing. If your IT guy is on LinkedIn commenting that he's struggling to implement the new Cisco firewall, well, then I know your firewall is not adequately configured and you're having trouble. That's something that will attract a bad guy. We need to be better at controlling how much information we put out in the public. 
So let's bring this back, Chuck, to the discussion about what banking institutions should be doing. When we talk about business email compromise or even the way that some of the PII that was used after the Chase breach to convince these customers to make investments into inflated stocks, a lot of this is out of the bank's control. I mean, banking institutions can't prevent their corporate and commercial customers for falling for socially engineered schemes. But they can do better jobs of protecting the customer PII that could be used to help link those customers to specific banks. Do you see banks doing more of that? Well, I don't yet, but I do hope to see banks doing a better job of protecting personal information. And I, I hate to sound like a doomsayer, but frankly, you're going to see more interest in the banks when there's litigation, when it costs them, when their customers do a class action lawsuit for them not protecting their PII, then they're suddenly going to get interested. There are so many simple steps, though, that I haven't seen any bank do. For example, I do a lot of online banking. When you log on, how about a brief video, maybe a minute long, two minutes, that tells end users about social engineering and to not trust someone calling them, claiming to be from the bank. That would take almost no effort, and I've never seen any bank do it. That's only one idea, but the bottom line is social engineering cannot be stopped with any technical measure. It can only be stopped with education. And as you stated, the bank can't prevent one of their users, be it a corporate or personal user, from falling for it, but they can take at least some rudimentary steps to make sure their users are aware of this danger. That's a great point, Chuck, because you recently spoke at our Dallas Summit about the dangers of social media and why so many businesses set themselves up for attack. You know, when it comes to what the businesses, not necessarily the employees, are doing, what should businesses be doing to help ensure that they're protecting their brands as well? Well, we start with education, and that includes education of your own staff. Your bank teller, your loan officer, is probably not conversant with IT security and they may be vulnerable to social engineering. Making sure they're all educated on what the dangers are. We do that already with physical robbery. I mean, you tell a bank teller that if you see someone looking nervous, wearing a hoodie and sunglasses, that maybe you should be concerned. Well, we should tell them the same thing regarding certain emails and phone calls. The second issue, however, is one we haven't touched on yet. There is a problem on the IT security side, on the people like me. In the past 10 years, IT security has become simply the hottest topic anywhere. And unfortunately, a common problem is happening. Everyone wants to get into IT security because it's lucrative, and there are a significant number of IT security professionals that simply don't have the adequate skill level. They have a small level of skill, but not enough to really be effective. Therefore, companies believe they have an IT security consultant or internal person, and they think they're safe, but is that person really skilled enough to do what you need them to do. So how do we address that, Chuck? I mean, how do you find a skilled workforce that can fill some of these roles? Well, unfortunately, there's not a easy, readily available solution. The one thing I would suggest is of all the people you hire, whether it's an outside consultant or internal employee, the security personnel, the IT security personnel, should get the most scrutiny, particularly regarding their background, ensuring that they actually have the skill set that they believe they have. To some extent, industry certifications help in this regard, but there's no single certification that indicates you're an expert. A combination of education, experience, certifications altogether will help indicate. We also have the issue of something that not enough organizations do, and that's penetration testing. That's when you have a skilled, trusted, legal person who will use hacking techniques to attempt to break into your security, and then tell you how they did it. But again, you have to be incredibly careful with who you hire to do that, 
because you're basically hiring them to break into your system. And then finally, before we close, Chuck, I just want to bring the conversation back to something that I mentioned in the introduction, and that was this new cybersecurity update that the FFIAC has issued. Let's talk a little bit about some of the updates that we've seen from the FFIAC recently. You know, it's noteworthy, I think, and I'd like to get some perspective from you, that in this management booklet update, there seems to be a more direct call for cybersecurity oversight at the board and C-level suite. Is this something new? Well, yes, and I think it's a very positive step. Unfortunately, in any organization, you can probably gauge how seriously they take something by at what level it's addressed at. If something's addressed at board level or C-level, that means it's being addressed at the highest possible level. The person looking at the problem clearly has the influence and authority to make things happen. If you have something that the highest person involved is a junior assistant vice president, that's indicative that the organization isn't taking it seriously. Well, that is a positive step. Seeing cybersecurity taken seriously at the top definitely is something that we all hope to see and hope to see more of in 2016. Organizations don't have to wait for regulation to do that. They need to start bringing security to the forefront of all their conversations. If we're rolling out a new mobile app, if we're bringing in a new financial product, Early in the process, we need to discuss, is this secure? Is it safe? Are we opening ourselves up to new vulnerabilities? And those conversations need to be at the highest level. Well, Chuck, very informative. I really thank you for your time today. Thanks for your insights. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, we've just heard from Chuck Eastham. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.